According to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus did lots more things than were recorded in the Gospels. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. And since my text is taken from the Gospel of John this morning, I think it's very fitting that my goal be the same as John's. Namely, that those who do not believe, and I'm sure there are people here that do not believe, that those who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God might be drawn to Jesus by the power of the Father through his word this morning as I speak. And second, that everybody will leave this place today loving the truth more and more assured of eternal life. But now let me preface what I have to say from the text in John 18 with a warning so as to awaken us all to the seriousness of hearing the word of God. One time Jesus spoke the word of God and very, very few people believed. And John explained what happened like this. John 12, 38 to 40. It was that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and turn for me to heal them. That's from Isaiah 53, verse 1. And Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. And there's another passage in Isaiah that John doesn't quote, but that helps us, I think, understand how it is God blinds and hardens. The text is Isaiah 64, verse 7, and Isaiah the prophet laments like this. There is no one that calls upon thy name, that bestirs himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast delivered us into the hands of our iniquities. Therefore, the way God blinds and hardens is not by coming into a life and making that life evil, but by withdrawing from a person's life and leaving them in their own hardening sin. Only when we see that truth will we give God all the credit, not only that he made a way of salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but also that he effectually applied that salvation to our hearts by drawing us to the Son in faith. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.34 No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. John 6.65 So the warning is this. Believers, give all the credit to God 
for drawing you into the kingdom of Christ. And let the truth of Christ this morning stir you up to greater and greater reliance upon the sovereignty of God. Don't boast over the lost sheep, forgetting that you had to be carried lock, stock, and barrel into the fold yourself. And to unbelievers, the warning is this. Give heed to the word of God and pray that he might open the eyes of your hearts and melt the hardness of your hearts, lest you be found blinded and hardened and without hope in the world. Pray, I say, and listen, for these words are spoken that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. The text for this morning is John 18, verse 37. This text grabbed me about three weeks ago and has not let me go and has demanded to be preached on this fourth Sunday of Advent. And that's why I'm going to do it. Several hours before Jesus died, here he is with Pilate in the praetorium. And he gives us a word here at the end of his life about the beginning of his life, about his birth. And the situation is this. Jesus and Pilate are together there in the praetorium. And Pilate is trying his best to find a way to get Jesus to say something that's going to make him guilty enough to be crucified. So he asks him the key question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, the answer Jesus gives in verse 34 is remarkable. But I'm going to postpone it until the end of the sermon because it's a great way to conclude. And I'm going to drop down to verse 36 where Jesus responds to Pilate like this. My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my disciples would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews or by the Jews. But my kingship is not of this world. And so Pilate responds, Aha, uh-huh. so you are a king. You say that I'm a king. For this I came into the world. For this I was born. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's a great Christmas text even though it was spoken at the end of his life rather than the beginning. And it has three things in it. The uniqueness of Jesus' birth, the purpose for his birth, and the precondition that a person has to experience in order to approve heartily of that purpose. The uniqueness of his birth is that he did not originate at his birth. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. Nobody else can say that. The purpose of his birth is, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And the precondition of approving that purpose and agreeing with his words is that you have to be of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears 
my voice. So let's look at each of those three things in turn in order that we might see Christ this morning and see his purpose and in seeing them be stirred up to approve Christ's words all the more heartily. First then the uniqueness of Christ's birth. For this I was born and for this I came into the world. The personhood, the character, the personality of Jesus did not originate in the manger in Bethlehem. Sometimes in quiet, pensive moments, I look at my sons, Karsten, Abraham, and Benjamin, who has a big knot on his forehead this morning because I tossed him down the front steps. I look at them. And uh, and I think about the four years that Noel and I were married before we had those boys. And it hits me. There was a time when those persons were nothing. They didn't exist. They were not. I know that the material out of which their bodies are made is all, was all here, it was somewhere, and just got put together in a different way because of all the molecules. But the personhood, the essential person, the soul that's going to go right on living forever and ever and ever after those bodies are decomposed in the grave, that was not. And now it is. And I look at them and I'm just amazed and I can only conclude God created these boys out of nothing. Their souls, just like he did create the souls of Adam and Eve, out of nothing. And that's a great mystery to me. Every time I think about it, it moves me. But that's not the case with Jesus Christ and the birth at Bethlehem. The theological word for what happened there is not creation, but incarnation, as you all know. The person, not the body, but the person, the essential personhood and personality and soul of Jesus of Nazareth existed before he was born. This is the way Micah, the prophet, chapter 5, verse 2, writing 700 years before Jesus came, put it. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old. From ancient days. The origin of the Messiah who appears at Bethlehem is from eternity. And therefore the mystery of the birth of Jesus Christ is not merely that he was born of a virgin. I think God intended that just to be a signpost. That something infinitely more important was happening here. Namely, that the person that was being born here was coming into the world from an existence that was from all eternity before. Listen to how Jesus put it. I just love this. I wrote a poem about this one time, but I won't read it. Maybe later sometime. But it moved me so to hear Jesus say this. John 8:56. He says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, 
You're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ah, and my chills run up and down my back to hear Jesus say that. You can't say that. You just can't go around and say those kinds of things. Unless they're true. What Jesus was before Jesus of Nazareth was born, Paul, John, and the writer to the Hebrews tell us very clearly, though not exhaustively. Here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And don't you ever let a Jehovah's Witness persuade you that the proper translation here is the Word was a God, as they have it in their New World translation. Because it is not compelling grammatically, no matter what they say, they've got to make up their own translation to make that stick, and it goes against the rest of John's Gospel. Take, for example, Thomas' confession when he falls down before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. It is clear to all the scholars of antiquity except a few sectarians, whether they believe the Bible or not, that John intended to say Jesus was God. Even those who think John's crazy for saying such a thing believe that that's what the words mean. And so don't let them convince you otherwise. And if you would like more about the Greek on that, I have a little article written by Bruce Metzger of Princeton Seminary where it's all laid out. and You can, you can order those and give them to them. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which means he is not a creature. He is not the angel Michael or Gabriel. He is the creator of the world. And everything that was created was created through him. And therefore, he is not created. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Christ existed before Abraham because he was one with God. He was God. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped and held on to, but emptied himself, gave up those outward signs of divinity. And became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Before he came in the likeness of men, he was in the form of God, equal with God. And then finally, the writer to the Hebrews, whose name we don't know, begins his book like this. In many and various ways, our fathers spoke to us by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed to be heir of all things through whom he created the world, who is the glory of God or the reflection of God's glory and who bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Now, these passages have helped me very, very much to formulate a picture in my mind, and I want to suggest it to you, of how it is that the Son and the Father can be distinct and yet one in the Trinity. I can conceive of a being who never had a beginning. It boggles me and pushes me to the limit of my imagination because everything I know around me had a beginning. But if we believe in God, we have to believe in a being who was forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never came into being. It staggers the imagination. But I can conceive of that. And I can conceive, secondly, that this being from all eternity had before his mind an image of himself, a picture of himself. He was self-conscious so that he could delight in and enjoy and contemplate all his beauty and power and perfections. And is it too much to go one step further and say, could it not be that this image is so clear, so lively, so real, that it too is God, the image of God, the reflection of God, the Son of God. That picture helps me because it enables me to see possibly how it is that the Son of God can be begotten, therefore subordinate in a sense, and yet not created, eternally begotten, because there never was a time when God did not have this image of himself. There never was a time when he did not see before him his own reflection, which then was real and was the Son of God. Now, I won't push that any further. I may have already overstepped the biblical bounds of speculation. But, oh, we need something. We who've grown up in the church who can recite the magnificent doctrines of the faith in our sleep, who can yawn through the Apostles' Creed. We need something. We need somebody to push us beyond what we've already seen of God so that we can begin to feel the awe and the fear and the astonishment and the joy and the wonder of the Son of God, begotten from all ages, reflecting the glory of God, the very image of of God and upholding the universe by the word of his power. You can read in a fairy tale a thousand times. Read every one of them. You can read every mystery thriller, every ghost story that you would like, and you will never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird, so eerie, as the Son of God coming into the world in a baby. 
Oh God, how dead we are. How many times have I had to repent and say, God, I am so sorry that reading this story made up by a man has given me more chills down my back, has given me more a sense of the stupendous, has caused more awe and fear and wonder in me than reading your true story. And I have to repent again and again that I'm so callous and so dead to the wonder. The space thrillers of our day, Star Wars and uh, Empire Strikes Back, can do us a great service in this way. They can humble us and cause us to repent that we have discovered that we really are capable of some of the emotions of awe and wonder and surprise and yet have not felt them about the most awesome things in the world. When Jesus said, for this I came into the world, he said something as crazy and as weird and as strange and eerie as anything you'll ever read in a science fiction novel. And if it doesn't grip you that way, it's because you've heard it so many times. And we've got to find a way to see it anew, don't we? I think that's why people write poems. That's why people sing songs. That's why people go away and get into quiet places. You've got to find a way not to treat the most astonishing story in the world as ho-hum. Oh, how I pray that the Spirit will break forth on me and on you. That the Holy Ghost, Ghost, might come in a frightening way upon us and make us wake up to the unimaginable reality of God. One of these days, one of these days, the sky is going to be filled with lightning from the rising of the sun to the setting. And one like a son of man with a mighty force of angels in flaming fire is going to appear in the clouds. And we're going to see him as clear as we see the IDS tower. And whether out of terror or out of sheer excitement, we're going to tremble and we're going to say to ourselves, how could we have ever so long have lived with such a domesticated, harmless, innocuous Christ as we have in our hearts? These things are spoken that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God, and believing, really believing, have life in his name. The second phrase of the text, John 8:37, gives the purpose of Christ's birth. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now the connection between that purpose and what I've said so far is that the Christ who is coming into the world is God. And who is better suited to reliably communicate the truth than God who is the origin, the creator of all that is true? God is the author of all truth and it is His will to make it known reliably. 
Picture this. If there were two deities, two gods, equally powerful and opposed to each other, there would be no way that we could count on those gods to be a source of truth and to reveal what is true. Because since their goal is to rule the world, and yet there is a threat to that rule from this equally powerful God, there is every reason to believe that they would use deceit to get the upper hand over that God. And we could never count on them to be a rock of truth. But not so with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one and only God. There is none besides Him. He is threatened by nobody. He is absolutely placid. There is no weakness. There is no flaw. There is no finitude that God Almighty has to fear being revealed. And therefore, He has no incentive whatsoever to deceive us about what is true. On the contrary, to reveal the truth is what he wants more than anything. Because when his truth is revealed, we see him for who, is it, for who he is. And we can glorify him. And that's what he wants more than anything. And how better to reveal the truth than to send the Son into the world who is the very image of God and the very reflection of his glory. One time Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you, and you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the truth because he is the image of the true God. Jesus is the way to the Father because as John says in 1 John 2:23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And he who confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't have the Father without the Son. You can't go to God without going to Jesus. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus. And that would mean that there's no life if we can't know God because Jesus says in John 17:3, This is eternal life, that they know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. So there are two Wonderful things implied in the purpose of the birth of Jesus, namely the purpose to reveal the truth or witness to the truth. One is that in revealing God, God is glorified. When God is seen for who he is in Jesus Christ, we will glorify him. And secondly, eternal life is our portion. This is the way Jesus put it. This is eternal life, to know thee, the only true God. And if Jesus' purpose is to reveal the truth of God, and revealing the truth of God enables us to know God, then it is Jesus' purpose for us to have eternal life. And that's what it says in John 
God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, the purpose of Christ's coming into the world is to testify to the truth of God in order that God might be glorified and that we might have eternal life. And that brings us to the third thing. Not everybody, not everybody who hears that has eternal life. Not everybody in this room will believe what I say. Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, he does not mean that there are only some who come within the hearing of his voice. He means that among those who are within the sound of his voice, only some hear the words as true and believe them and gain eternal life. And this group he describes in this way. They are those who are of the truth. What does that mean? You recall the question that Pilate asked that I said I'd come back to at the end? I want to come back now. John 18, 33. Because I think Jesus is trying to find out here whether Pilate is of the truth. Pilate says in verse 33, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus does not answer his question. But so often, in his typical style, he asks another one. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? That's a remarkable response. What matters first to Jesus is not the sharing of information about whether he's a king or not. What matters is uncovering the root of the question. Pilate, does your question about who I am come from a true hunger of your own heart to know the truth? Pilate, is there a soul thirst in you that you're seeking to genuinely satisfy? Pilate, are you yearning in yourself to know the truth about my kingship? Or are you like so many others in the world that I found? Mouthing, just mouthing what other people have taught you to say. Are you just a second-hander who only knows to ask the questions that others have taught you? Do you care in yourself, Pilate? about whether I am king or not? Or are you just echoing like a hollow cave the script of somebody else? Are you an actor or are you of the truth? I think to be of the truth means that we love the truth. We, we rejoice in the truth, like 1 Corinthians 13.6 says. We hunger for it. We are surrendered to it to go wherever it leads. And we've given up our own private, proud will and are utterly subordinate to the truth. If we are of the truth in that sense, we will hear the words of Jesus. Here's the word Jesus said it in John 7:17. 7, if any man's will 
is to do the will of God, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God. The will of God is simply an expression of the truth. Therefore, Jesus is saying, if any man's will is to love the truth and to subordinate himself humbly to the truth, then he will have an openness to the truth, will recognize the truth when he sees it, and will come and hear and know my words. And who are these people that love the truth? and humbly submit themselves to the truth, and therefore are wide open to Jesus' teachings, they are the sheep of his pasture. John 10, 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them. To be of the truth means to be a sheep. There's another way he put it. John 8, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. So to be of the truth means to have God at work within our hearts humbling us, enabling us to own up to the truth and getting rid of our proud self-will and accepting His way. No one comes to me to the truth unless it is granted to him by the Father. So the sum of the matter is this. Jesus Christ existed before He was born in Nazareth. And he came into the world for this purpose, perfectly suited to bear witness to the truth, that we might know God, glorify him, and gain eternal life. But even though he came in order that we might have life and have it more abundantly, this is the final word. This is the judgment that light has come into the world And men have loved darkness, falsehood, more than they have loved light, truth, because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true, he who is of the truth, comes to the light that it may be manifested that all his deeds have been wrought by God and not by himself. Oh, that every person might leave this place this morning towards the light and of the truth.